1: Your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Mel Barnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome, all you lords, ladies, and knights, to the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I am your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today are my good friends and co host, Mr. Chad Robinson from right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How are you doing, sir?
2: It is snowing in March. I am fantastic.
1: Yeah, it's beautiful. And let's go to the other side of the country from Washington State. How you doing, Brian?
0: Uh, good, man. It's a beautiful day here. Still cold, but awesome.
1: All right. Well, let's break the ice here. Now, in in vein of today's movie, what is a movie you shouldn't have seen, but you did see? Chad.
2: You know what? Even though I think I was age appropriate for it, I'm going with House of a Thousand Corpses. If there's one movie I could forget in my life, I think it's that one.
1: Okay. Yeah, but what about you, Brian? What's a movie that you saw that you probably shouldn't have seen
0: yet? I'm gonna go with the original It for the age consideration. It took me yeah. a really, really long time to to get over that.
1: You don't even have to finish that one. That one's hev- that one's
0: heavy <laughs> right from the get go. Yeah, uh, but Chad's not wrong.
2: I uh, was I with you ha- for that.
0: Yeah, I have a. Yeah. <laughs> so House of Thousand Corpses was a very uh, I wish I could forget movie. And, I, you know, I always harp on about
2: Requiem for a Dream.
0: Requiem for a Dream. I, I do wish I could bleach that from my memory, but now that I have seen it, I'm not, you know, at least I can say, yeah, I've seen it. And then people leave me alone.
1: While for age purposes, my mom was a little bit upset with my sister that I was allowed to watch Wayne's World, uh, I don't think any harm came to it. I think just <laughs> some jokes just went over my head, like when it first came out, hit the movie rental store. So probably would have been about seven. I mean, that's not too harmful. But I would say the one that I should have most not seen was Human Centipede. It's just, you know, th- that's people fair. talk people talking about the visceral reaction to it made me curious. And then I was like, yeah, let's just not talk about this movie because it's so bad. <laughs>
0: you know? I, I, I That's actually a funny – it's funny you bring that up because I have not seen it. I have no plans to see it. Yeah, it's just one of those things where I'm like – Thanks for the, the healthy warning there.
2: Oh, no, I'll have a watch party with you. Come on, you you, <laughs> me, Jessica. We'll, uh, we'll check it out.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So it, it's a lot to deal with. What's the last movie you saw, Chad?
2: Fresh with Sebastian Stan. I cannot recommend that movie enough. It's Hulu exclusive, which is unfortunate, oh, nice. but it is awesome.
1: Okay, uh, not a glimmering
0: endorsement for Hulu. You say it's unfortunate there.
2: I just want more people to see this movie.
0: Got it. I'm writing it. I I literally just pulled out a pen so I can write it down. Now, Fry, what about you? What's the last movie you saw? It's kind of a cop out because this is just, you know, certain days with my daughter, all we end up doing is like having a movie on. But I watched Patriot Games over breakfast this morning. All right. Yeah. That's a great one.
2: And what was your daughter's review of that one?
0: (laughs) Eating breakfast, eating breakfast, make a giant mess, make daddy clean up giant mess, dog wants to eat giant mess. You didn't say the last movie I paid attention to. <laughs> uh,
1: no, no, that's that's all right. I know you know this one like the back of your hand, so that's okay. And I I think you're going to know this movie like the back of your hand as well. Brian, the last movie I saw was Dune from 2021.
0: Uh, <laughs> oh,
2: God. I may,
0: I may have seen it once and or twice. Brian's yes. still
2: not mentioning it, and it's still getting this brought week. up in every Brian episode.
1: I know. I know, right? I I uh I withheld to, to wait till I knew I was going to be on with Brian to make sure that I finished the movie so I can tell him I watched it. So yeah, HBO took it away and um hey, my uh, my mother-in-law gifted us a Blu-ray copy so that we could finish it, you know? So we watched it from start to finish as it should be. It was good. We had a good time. It's it's incomplete. Yeah. It's a part 1 and that's always unsatisfying, but beyond if you can get around that, it's a well-made movie.
0: It, it had the best climax, I think, that you could give a half of a book.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, the to be continued thing is hard to hard to sit with, but you know what's not hard to sit with? What movie are we doing today, Chad?
2: <laughs> I'm not sure that transaction works for this. Yeah, no, it doesn't.
0: My, my wife would say that this was very hard okay, to sit I'll, with Okay, I'll
2: re-record that again. No, please don't. I think all it's all funnier it. that way. We'll all right, all. you know
1: what else is hard to sit with? Chad, what is today's movie?
2: From 1960, Peeping Tom.
1: Peeping Tom. All right, so this movie stars Carl Bohm, Maura Scheer, Anna Massey, and Maxine Audley, among some other people. It is made for a budget of 125 pounds. That's not an outrageous budget. It did not do well in the box office. It, it, it had trouble staying in the box office, for that matter.
0: <laughs>
2: it
1: got pulled. It barely got to North America. It was, it was handed off to a second-hand a distributor, a a B-movie distributor, if you will. So it's considered part of the Satan trilogy, along with Horrors of the Black Museum from 1959 and the Circus of Horrors from 1960. These had different production companies, but they came from that same distributor and they all kind of had the same themes of voyeurism, disfigurement, just sadistic figures. So, we're going to be making you feel a little bit uncomfortable today as I alluded to earlier. So, this didn't this didn't chart well in the box office, but what did was the number 1 movie from 1960, and that's The Swiss Family Robinson. And Peeping Tom gets a 7.6 on IMDb, but where the where it gets a lot of love is the critics of Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 96%, which I now know for sure. The Rotten Tomatoes critics are modern critics only because this movie was panned. Mm -hmm. It was a bloodbath by the critics at the time. So those are contemporary critics, love this movie. And the audience score gives it an 85%. So we talk a lot about the AFI, but there's something called the BFI. And it's the British Film Institute. And they have their own top 100 movies. And the BFI gives this a number 78 on their top 100 movies of all time. Those are the British production movies. So high praise, again. So the legacy of this is appreciated. Not so much appreciated at the time. Now, Chad, I know you saw this one. You've been talking about it for a couple of years when when you first picked it up. Tell us, what was your introduction to this one?
2: Yeah, so I was going through a horror movie challenge, and this was pretty high up. I was intrigued by the Rotten Tomato rankings. So, yeah, when I saw it a couple years ago, went to check it off, and, man, I loved it. Uh, it's a proto slasher. It's really, it's the slasher before Black Christmas gets a lot of the credit. Yeah, it it has a lot of the slasher elements. I, I loved it the first time. I was really excited to put it in the random number generator and here it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, I I, I gotta say, like, you, you, you have talked this one up. You have recommended this one to a lot of people. Not as hard of a sell as, like, Fry has been on Dune 84 and, two, and 2021, but uh, you you definitely have been big on it. So you think it's aging actually quite well then, it sounds like.
2: I mean, clearly the critics are appreciating it. And I think the more horror that you've seen, the more influence you start seeing from this movie. And it's just, it's a fascinating study. And it's technically well done.
1: It is, yeah. Now, Brian, this was your first time with Peeping Tom?
0: Oh, 100%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And how did it go? So, uh, like many of our kind of off-the-hip movies, I ended up watching this with my wife. And <sighs> intermittently between her paying attention to the movie and paying attention to her phone, she, she was a very harsh critic of this film. Uh, which she does a lot, like I. She doesn't really take it all in. Uh, I wasn't a huge fan right off the bat, but as the film progressed, I was kind of digging what they were going for. So I don't know. It's uh, it, it has matured well overnight. I'll put it that way.
1: Yeah, yeah. So so you did this one only once then so far.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, okay.
1: Well, then it'll marinate throughout the course of this show then. I uh, I watched this one for the first time as well, for this show, and uh, I had had it on the well. Chad has talked this one up, and uh, he has recommended this one to me, and uh, I kind of had it in the back of my mind of like yeah. So when an October rolls around, put this in the list of to th- to see things. And while it's not October, I'm glad I saw it. It's it's a it's a I would call it an intellectual movie. I, I, it's funny, like it's not straight up. I don't think it's just clear cut and dry like a horror movie, and it's being called a slasher because I'm experiencing it. Psychological thriller kind of comes into this too, I guess. It, it's, um, I don't know. I, I feel like, I feel like it, it does multiple things. I think it's hailed as like this really influential horror movie, which it is, but I think it's, I think it's more things than that.
2: Yeah,
0: I'll, I'll, I'll jump in here just because you make a good point. I think. It is horror for the time, and I think what I really got out of it was the bones of this movie, how it's the, the, the salient point that they're trying to get across to you, why this guy is this way, and isn't horror. Like, it's actually, I agree, it's a very intellectual movie from that standpoint that's just simply marred by the time in which it was made.
1: Yeah. I agree with you 100%. So we will be spoiling Peeping Tom. It's not a movie I think you want spoiled. So, I mean, uh, but Mm -hmm. who am I to say? You know, I mean, uh, you know, we'll be back after these messages where there will be spoilers that lie ahead. So,
0: What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film
2: Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms.
0: Like you.
1: And we're back. This is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. Now, Chad, for those who haven't seen Peeping Tom since 1960, and not many people saw it in 1960, <laughs> for those people, do you want to refresh the memories?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, Mark Lewis is a shutterbug with a penchant for murder. We first see Mark meet up with a prostitute while covertly filming her from under his trench coat. We follow them into her flat where Mark murders her with an unseen instrument, a look of terror on Dora's face. Mark works as a member of a film crew and fancies himself as a filmmaker as well. He lives in his late father's house and rents the downstairs unit to the Stevens family. Helen Stevens is a sweet girl and her blind mother lives with her. Mark tells Helen that he was a guinea pig for his father, who experimented on Mark with reaction to fear and was constantly surveilled. This led to absolutely no problems in his adult life, none whatsoever. (laughs) Mark arranges to meet up with a stand in at the studio and murders her, placing her body in a trunk. The police interview Mark but let him go. Helen's mother distrusts Mark and breaks into his apartment. He doesn't want to disappoint Helen, so instead he kills a pin-up model named Millie. Finally, Helen becomes curious about Mark's films and runs one for herself, which visibly upsets her. Mark reveals he's mounted a mirror to his camera to capture a victim's reaction to death. He refuses to kill Helen, but, surrounded by police after the discovery of Millie, films his own death. His documentary is now complete.
1: Yeah, but who's going to edit that?
2: I mean, there's in this day and age, I'm sure you could find some some forum fan.
0: Interesting. I I really really love movies that intermix the fact that it's a film about a guy filming horror. Like I I super dig that. I know I've mentioned it a couple of times, but uh, I think it was Carpenter did a thing for Masters of Horror called Cigarette Burns that was also. Like not in line with this, where someone's filming, but you know, the incorporating film into the film, so uh, super dig it, yeah,
1: yeah. So so this is challenging material for the time, as we've already touched on. There, there's a critical mauling at the time. <laughs> like they're not they're not kind to this at all. 1960, the world's a different place. People are a little more uptight, and this movie is perhaps tame by today's standards, but I mean it has nudity, it has the predominant actor or the primary protagonist is a very troubled individual who is a killer. And furthermore, this has got to be one of the first times we're asked to sympathize with the killer being the protagonist. You might not think that's such a large thing to bite off as a modern audience, but it certainly was for then Did I miss anything, Chad? Like, is this, is, is it really that simple? Plus we're just dealing with repugnant topics. I mean, there's voyeurism. Mm -hmm. There's like, there's like a, um, there's like a fetish that he has in watching people. These are just things that people are uncomfortable even today talking about and dealing about and thinking about, but certainly at the time, certainly for what was in cinema at the time, mind blowing, but it's not just rubbish, is it?
2: Yeah, this movie was actually made kind of as a criticism of its own audience and their voyeurism. But to your point, yes, it had nudity, but this was the first on-screen nudity for British film, so even more shocking. This movie was shocking enough that Christopher Lee, who was in Powell's film eight years ago, went to see his old director's new film and walked out. So yeah, this this movie... 1944 was when we first had a movie it's called the lodger where it puts you in the killer's point of view that was like the innovation scream 4 got it wrong i love scream 4 peeping tom comes up as the answer of the movie where you're put into the killer's shoes but it's done better here and it's done far more prominently here so for people that hadn't seen the lodger or, you know, we we're 16 years removed from that, this is this is so different. It is insane. And our director here, Michael Powell, he was doing well and people were really excited and this is what he gave them. And nobody liked it. It's just, to your point, bloodbath is appropriate. Just the critics, this was pulled in five days.
1: Yeah, that's what I alluded oh. to earlier. It did not have long to you
0: know gain money so
2: and they censored the heck out of it too i'm
0: disappointed i i must have missed the nudity either that or i'm i'm so used to like what we call nudity now that they're counting something as nudity that's not nudity
2: right before he kills millie she is naked on the bed but they they, they cut more scenes of her there 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 were more there was like a sheer top and things like that now, yeah, like
0: I like I said, there might be some things that they contend, you know, contended as uh, uh, considered nudity at the time.
1: Fry just spends They're, so long around naked ladies all day long that he doesn't know. That, oh, anymore. I mean, I'm just yeah, it's just drowning over here. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's just really it's interesting. That's why I podcast. Yeah, <laughs> it is a babe magnet. I, I <laughs> the. The phrase peeping Tom, though, comes from a boy who looked at Lady Godiva while she rode naked on a horse riding mm. through the village. And even though they were all warned not to look at her. So I, I found myself thinking this movie it kind of made me think going into it, we're going to have some guy peeping on like window, window watching, you know, like like a scary version of John Belushi on a ladder looking at a girl changing. <laughs> not that that's not scary, but like not John Belushi. Maybe it's uh, somebody else that's not as funny doing it. And this is very much not that. And what it is, is it's a lot more challenging. And I I, I found myself sitting there going like, there's probably going to be a bunch of holes when you start to stop and think about this. But it's remarkable how intact it is, given the time. Mental evaluations and troubles with these kinds of things... Uh, we learned so much about mental health since then, and yet at the same time, it's not—it's not terrible. I mean, there's there's things that we could know better, but again, they're challenging the viewer to sympathize with this character. He had a rough upbringing, and his father subjected him to experiments. Really, it's not an extreme word to say experiments of just trying to get. To make him afraid, waking him up in the middle of the night, making him cry, making him afraid, and just studying—he had a child so that he can use him as a guinea pig.
2: Mm-hmm. And what oh, that, dad.
1: You know, what does that do to a kid? So, if um, we haven't gotten the drift or whatever, he didn't have Dad of the Year, and so these are these are challenging things for the people at the time. It's just interesting though that the critics get to speak for you so strongly. And today's times, if the critics pan something that heavily. You will wreck their box office run, perhaps initially, but you won't totally sink the film. In fact, you might draw people to it. And Leonard Moulton, who's a critic, you know, my critic of choice, usually uh, he he has said that the role of the critic has been largely marginalized with you know Rotten Tomatoes and the internet and the aggregator score. So uh, you can still look to a critic who really studies these things. But at the end of the day, the mass. Like finger to the wind, like how do people really feel about this? Is so ever present, and there's more critics than there used to be. So there's this drowning of information. It just averages out. We all look at the percentages, and so back then, it shows you how much power critics have to wreck a movie.
2: Oh yeah, that
0: that would actually be my my biggest uh, uh, proponent or piece to say good. <laughs> like I don't think one person should ever completely you know have the ability to to wreck a film, so uh the less uh the the less singular power that one person or even a couple people have i'm I'm game for that
1: now Chad, you've mentioned before that this is a movie with a big impacting legacy How did this start to transform?
2: yeah i mean we we don't see the true slasher until. Black Christmas, I think that's 1976, but it's it's mid to late 70s, so this doesn't really get picked up. We'd see a lot of comparison, and you you sort of alluded to a lot of the themes, and people are probably thinking Psycho. Psycho was two months after this movie. Now, obviously, they're not really influencing each other. They're filmed pretty simultaneously, but Psycho has a lot of the same themes, a lot of the same mystery and crime involved and it's a success where this movie just it gets pulled because it just it does one too many innovative things that weren't ready for the time period but it's it gets a bigger and bigger influence we see it in uh, scream 4 it's referenced Halloween resurrection. Michael Myers actually uses a tripod to stab someone. Last night in Soho, which was 2021, I really enjoyed that film. It heavily God, I see that still. it heavily draws from this film. There's a lot of scenes. There's a lot of language that's used. They do mention Soho in this movie, and so yeah, it it's continuing to influence directors and you know Martin Scorsese. Cites this as one of two movies that, if you're a director, you need to see to learn everything you can about directing. He uses this movie.
1: Yeah, he's going to come up a lot tonight. He is, if there was ever an advocate for a movie, (laughs) it it is him on this movie. He's saved this movie. But, I mean, he's got clout. So, I mean, when he says, this man doesn't just like it, he gushes about it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Fry... How do you think that uh, I would equate it to like, uh, you know, the Ramones weren't like the biggest band in the whole world, but everybody who listened to the Ramones seemed to start a band and the impact was enormous off of it. And in some ways, this is this the filmmakers got a hold of this and it's the filmmakers who started to appreciate this and saw things between the lines and went out and sought it out. And you really had to try and seek it out if you wanted to get it. But what do you think the filmmakers at the time were seeing in it and how how it resonated with them against the odds
0: well we've already kind of talked about how you know this is a it's a very thoughtful movie in terms of how they're trying to use a very unestablished and very um thriller-ish you know psychology is is i, I hate to say crazy but i mean it's 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 such an interesting subject that when applied in this way does make people uncomfortable and when that's your goal you know it really opens up the kind of like narcissist next door kind of thing where you're you're saying that that normal guy who runs the camera in my studio is also a murderer who really enjoys filming fear you know that's that's a cerebral point in this and it's, it's funny you brought up the ramones on this like i i'd like to pick a band that's less well known because I've never heard of this movie before this just to say like, Hey, this is something I found and you know, it's really fantastic. And it really, I I could even go with like uh, Susie and the Banshees might be a better way to put it where, you know, you have goth rock is in its infancy. You got some punk in there and that sort of thing. But a lot of people haven't ever heard of them, but yet it's influential. So it's something like that.
1: Maybe. Yeah. And I guess, uh, yeah, I'm going back to my Ramones thing, but uh, whether it be Nirvana or Green Day or all the bands that came out and said the Ramones were such an influence on them and stuff like that, that that's like Martin Scorsese coming back and like being like, Hey, this, this is worth your time. And it did get its, it did get its appreciation and found its audience uh, way later. It's just really interesting.
0: For our music viewers, uh, there was actually a quote from a, a music critic when the Velvet Underground came out and said, you know, not a lot of people bought this album, but every one of them started a band.
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's another great parallel. And it, it, it's camera work. We'll talk about that here in a little bit is is also really great. And so it, it's I think it expanded. I, I think Chad just called, called me out on it before. You like to be challenged by a movie. And I do. I do. And this movie called me out to the challenge. I wish I had more time to chew on this one going into this one. I so, agree with that. Uh, totally I, with that. I wanted to sit with this one longer, and, and full disclosure, we had a shorter turnaround for this episode than usual. I normally watch a month in advance and put a lot of homework into it, and if there was ever a time when I wanted to sit with it longer, it, it's this one. <laughs> so maybe someday, when we've covered every movie and we have to take a second pass, this one will be early on my list.
2: Well, I have <laughs> to ask you both, because I'm, I'm curious here, because this movie, you, you've kind of struggled and, and said with the genre... It's not quite this. It's not quite this. This movie's funny. I, to me, this movie has a lot of funny moments, and it's it's not corny nineteen sixties. There's a little bit in the bodega type scene, but there's there's a lot of comedy in this movie. So how did that treat you?
1: I liked the seeing the film crew of what would have been thumbing its nose at the movie industry at the time. The fluffy director who's doing a puffy piece and, you know, super egotistical director. Uh, He's quite a caricature of himself. And this movie is clearly not that movie. And it thinks much more highly of itself than that. You can call that pretentious if you want to, but I think it's done under, I
0: think it's done with, with humor.
1: And that to me was my favorite parts of the humor on this one.
0: And I like that. This movie made me laugh more times than breaking away.
1: <laughs> I think that's incredibly sad. And, um, yeah, <laughs> it does. I'm, it, I'm already sitting down, but I'm going to lean back in my chair a little bit more.
2: Just, uh, it makes me laugh out loud. And that's, that's hard to do.
0: Really? Oh, there, there are at least two times that I laughed out loud in this.
2: Yeah. The cops were great. I, yeah. You know, bumbling cops can be such a horrible thing to add to a movie, but here they're pretty funny.
1: Would you call I wouldn't call these bumbling cops like they're they're a little bit they're out of their element with what they're dealing with, but they do figure it out. I mean, we're
0: not dealing with
1: something typical.
0: Uh, did they figure it out or did he basically lead them by a string to him?
2: <laughs> they they did wind up figuring it out because they were trailing him and uh, then the hooker winds up dead so they know he'd, he'd visited her. I guess she was the pinup. The hooker was dead too. But, yeah, they, the pinup's dead and so they knew and that's why they were rushing to his apartment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, that hooker in the beginning, Dora. Yes. Super not into her job. <laughs> like, I mean, you need to talk to a career counselor at that point and just shift your line of work. Because th- if there was ever somebody who wasn't feeling their job, it was her. Like she was like scowling. It's just like it was like I don't know. Uh, I'm not. Uh, hey, I was going to procure your services, but you're clearly not into this, and that's just making me feel. <laughs> it's like uh, how soulless can you be at this? So uh, yeah. I mean,
2: but that opening scene, it's two minutes in that camera crosshairs that looks like a rifle scope. It's a two minute long continuous shot up the flat and up the stairs and into her flat and through that entire scene. And it's just that's that's great, especially for this time period.
1: I've never been a hooker, but if I if I hook it up, I'd, I'd at least put an effort into it. Like, you know, like, have some personal pride for what you're doing. That's all I'm saying here. Come on.
0: Get into it. I mean, it. can can you really review this movie without no. hooking at least a little bit, Russell?
1: <laughs> I it just... It's... Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, put... You gotta put a leg out there sometime. <laughs> <laughs> now, this cast... Not full of star
1: power, not to its help, you know, whereas I think Psycho had... Hitchcock was a more established name than Michael Powell, and it had a cast that was perhaps more alluring uh, than this this one. So you're right, Chad. When we studied Psycho, which, man, I wish we could have been on that episode, but when we did Psycho, this pushed a lot of buttons. It crossed a lot of boundaries. Hitchcock really had to go to bat for stuff. He made the right calls in the right time, and... I don't know. It's interesting, and in fact, th- this is a British movie. I think I think Europeans tend to be less uptight than Americans, and I thought the deck was more stacked against Hitchcock, but he pulled it out. And in fairness, it's on brand with him. He had already made Vertigo. Yeah. So I mean, that's a troubling individual as well. Actually, we don't. We're not asked to sympathize with the characters of um, conflict and Psycho like we are here, but. It's just interesting to me that uh, this cast seems to be... A lot of them aren't first choices, but they seem so spot on for me. I just want to say that this cast was just largely really good.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we almost got J- Julie Andrews for I know, I know.
1: More people would have gone to this movie for Julie Andrews. But yeah, uh, yeah. Lawrence Harvey was slated for the lead role. And uh, Michael Powell ended up casting a German... Carl Heinz Bohm. They changed it to just Carl Bohm. No explanation of his accent, but right. somehow his method of speaking is... Um, there's a distance and a, a detachment. I actually liked it. I mean, it's not like... I agree. You know, so uh, he's just so good at getting into the zone of this character. I don't know what it takes as an actor, but there's a level of detachment and just... This is beyond eccentric. There's, there's something right. that's just like mysterious but also dangerous about this character and he conveys all of that so well
2: another german actor conrad veit the man who laughs kind of reminds me of him
0: right yeah
1: yeah and uh, Boehm was a friend of powell the director by the way and so they were prior acquaintances that chemistry was very beneficial bohm said in an interview he just really got me at, like at a deep core as an actor and so that, they had a very strong chemistry. Makes you wonder why they would ever would have looked at somebody else. So, But Bohm saw Lewis as a sympathetic character, and I think he conveys that. He he, he portrayed it with great pity for the character, and he said that he could identify with the character because you know he was in the shadow of a famous uh, father, Carl Bohm, and uh, he had a difficult relationship with him. So it's interesting as an actor being handed this very foreign, very challenging thing to dip into. And he found ways to relate to them and turned that to his advantage. And it's really fun to hear an actor deconstruct how they get to that place. And it's really cool to hear him talk about that.
2: Well, his Agreed. his line after talking about that those child films and how his dad was studying him and see how he'd react, he just says, I think he learned a lot from me. And it's just yeah. with a touch of sadness that really gets me you're right it's like oh i'm sympathizing with jack the ripper
1: yeah yeah it, it, it is it, it, it's conflicting as a as somebody who's watching this you like him but he's doing terrible things <laughs> i mean uh, he, he doesn't even like that he is this way he wants he talks to a psychologist at some point asking is there is there a cure for somebody with my scopophilia uh, that I have, like this strong desire, uh, uh, and he knows it's ruining his life. He likes Helen. He actually likes her, mm-hmm. and he's just not attracted. Like, he takes pictures of girls who take their clothes off. It doesn't do it for him. Like, that's just not what turns this guy on. Watching people's visceral fear gives him, I, I don't know, they didn't really play this up, but it's almost as if he gets a sexual gratification out of it.
2: Yeah, I think if this movie were made in twenty twenty two, that's exactly where they would go.
1: Uh, they imply I it anyway. They imply it anyway. They just they can't they can't spoon feed it to you.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's there's the films of him staring at the couples making out, and he kind of has a another pause in a moment where he's with Helen and there's a couple making out. So there's clearly some aspect of sexualizing this voyeurism
1: yeah and it's like like with so many of these other things it starts as it starts off as something as similar as that where that might be kind of harmless to watch a couple make out from a distance or whatever but then he's taken it so many more steps over the years to the point where it's just not enough he has to kill somebody and kill them on film and watch them be afraid and then study it and relive it over and over again the only one that maybe i wanted to know about is he is very interested in a disfigured model she turns she turns her face to the camera and we see that she's physically discouraged and he is like all about that and they did <laughs> mention at some point that he's just fascinated with the morbid but this is the only instance that doesn't seem to be as driven by the fear and the voyeur as much i i don't know if that's an inconsistency or it's just me not like I said, that part of me wanted to study this more. And that's one of those things where I was left with a question mark. What
0: was with that? I think people who are inwardly broken look at people who feel as though they're outwardly broken in the same sort of kinship.
2: Yeah. That, hmm. I that's think, a good point. I, I like think that. that's very much it. But also there's the aspect of the mirror. You, you see what the twisted image looks like and the mouth curls up. So he's getting a little bit of that mirror death image in her. Cause her mouth is disfigured and it's turned upwards and it's in that kind of same death snarl that his mirror is.
0: Yeah. So speak, speaking of, uh, uh, parts that make you laugh out loud when the, the other model is talking about how she was out with her boyfriend or her, her fiance caught him. <laughs> <laughs> I laugh out loud. I was like, I was not expecting that from the girl taking her clothes off for money. Maybe I should have, But that's just not where I thought that direction was going.
2: Oh, Millie's great.
1: Yeah. You know, it's unbelievable how much of the movie trivia on this one revolves around her, the woman playing her, Pamela Green. I felt like this movie, uh, again, is a very intellectual movie. And it's, (laughs) I won't call it disappointing, but I was sitting there going like, the number of stories about how this was a sensational thing that, you know, she was going to be nude in the movie. I mean, there were literally... A lot of people who came on set that would not be there from other departments and other you know studios and stuff like that to watch her take her clothes off for for the for the film and she chastised the director for it it kind of sounds like a creep as a director to be honest with you i mean even down to like he saw nude photos of her and he's just like this is gonna be this is gonna be her and they they still like like the audition sounded Kind of exploited he had her come in, and he was like, "Oh, look how comfortable she is taking her clothes off in front of all these people. This is wonderful." And it's uh it's funny how this one little piece of the movie became such a lightning rod for the facts and the enthusiasm for the people making the movie. And uh, it's funny, like today, there's nudity in movies, and it's considered part of the art or part of maybe imperative part of the storytelling. But at the time, this is quite a sideshow. That I mean, it it is a shadow over the rest of all the stuff that's going on here in some ways.
2: Yeah. They actually had to kick someone out for being a real life peeping Tom. There was someone that wasn't supposed to be there taking pictures of Pamela Green as she was undressed and she just starts screaming because this, this dude's not supposed to be there with a camera and he was escorted off of the set but he was from some newspaper trying to get a shot of her which is super super creepy and that dude should be in jail today but 1960s it was probably more like let's just throw him off the lot good try i
1: thought it was odd that uh, pamela green was disrobed on set for the scene and there were two young boys just around And uh, about seven and eight age, more or less, and they were sitting on the floor by the camera. And the director just told her that those were his sons, and that he invited them to watch the scene. Don't worry about it. And which, again, that's a weird story. Right. (laughs) It just she didn't argue or protest. She just filmed the scene. But um, so many weird stories about that. And like Brian said, like uh, by today's standards, it's not the most. In your face, but no. word word got around the movie industry. That's for sure.
2: Yeah, the 70s takes this and runs. It's like, oh, you can do this now? <laughs> Full frontal nudity all the time. It doesn't matter if it makes sense. That's
1: right. I think the writing on this one, I wanted to know more about who conceived this, but the guy's name, the screenwriter's Leo Marx, and he bases portions of this film on his own experience growing up as the son of an owner of a uh, Marks & Company bookstore in, in London, this store is very strange to us American audiences by today's standards. Uh, it's got lots of nude women posed up in the street. And and when you go in, and yet this is also a shop where a little girl comes in and <laughs> she bought some candy. This yeah. is weird. Like, I mean, I know the British are a lot more loose on nudity than we are here, uh, but I mean th- it felt like a porn store. And they even made their own porn yeah. upstairs or softcore porn upstairs. And yet, like, they sell newspapers and candy and, like, it's a <laughs> magazine stand. Like, this is weird. Like, I mean, this isn't like the like scene in Clerks when the guy goes up to the counter and being like, you got the other kind of magazines behind the counter? Like, they're everywhere. Right. And it's weird.
2: <laughs> he gives him the bag that's that says educational books.
0: Yeah. Miles Mallison totally makes it seem like a porn store too. Yeah.
2: <laughs> he's twitchy. He's nervous. Yeah. That's.
0: You forgot your papers. What? Oh yes. Of course. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that little girl was completely distracting. I can. Comp- I forgot about her entirely. And she walks in and I'm like, is, is this his daughter? Is there some reason she's here? Nope. Nope. Random schoolgirl in the porn shop.
0: Candy bars. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh,
1: he, you know, and Leo Marx even says the prostitute Dora who I chastised for just being totally out of it. Apparently this is based on a real life prostitute who hung around and was a regular patron at his dad's bookstore. I guess it's based on a real life hooker. Who's just dead inside.
0: <laughs>
2: Jeez, <laughs> I don't know what to do with dead inside. Yeah. hooker. I'm sorry.
0: Got nothing.
1: Well, Mark made her dead on the outside, too.
2: Well played. Well, well played, sir. <laughs> oh, it's not a podcast without a dead hooker. <laughs>
0: Isn't that the truth?
1: But uh, while writing the script, Marx believes the motivations behind Lewis's murder to be entirely sexual. He would say in retrospect that he felt like the psychological compulsion for the character was less sexual than it was unconscious. And I feel like it wasn't unconscious either because he was totally like he had remorse like like there was like this oh no i've done it again kind of thing like of like or he was even aware like i can't photograph you helen otherwise i'll lose everything i photograph so he knows he's gonna do this and he can't help it but he's got to do it anyway it's uh i don't know it's like pringles once you pop you can't stop
2: he talks about not caring about the consequences and i think that's what leads michael powell into saying he, he said over and over, this is not a horror film. This is a psychological film. It's it's something entirely different. Yeah, you could look at it as horror because it's, it's a proto-slasher. He's using a weapon and killing multiple people with it. But to Michael Powell, he's really just trying to tell a story of abuse and consequences and satirize them movie industry and and make a statement about audiences voyeurism as well like what you keep trying to see.
1: If there was ever normally the, the audience is gonna sympathize with the, when a, a kid when they can't uh, be with somebody that they're interested in but in this case Helen's mom, boy was she right? <laughs> <laughs> she had a feeling saying
2: like
1: uh, you need to stay away from him and uh, that being right is an understatement.
0: One of the effects I really like in this is where like he's all bent out of shape talking to her and it's almost like she can hear how fast his heart's beating. Yes. They're like pumping it through the, the sound effects.
2: Yeah, man, that was a great scene. And I, I like that so much of the film, it starts with an eye opening and it's so filtered around what Mark sees and that the camera can't see anything. And her mother is blind. I like that addition. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah. And uh, she didn't actually see what was. he was filming. She's like, "You're not. You're not lying to me." It's like there's no point in it. You would know. It's just like, oh, so it's really bad then. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's never exactly said what it was that he was watching, but she left going like, "I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's worse than better that I don't know, but it's bad."
2: Right. Yeah. The, the thing she says, like when Helen asked, how did you know he was there? Because the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. She just has this instinct that we're made to believe because she's blind that all her other senses are heightened. I think that's cool.
1: Yeah. yeah. She too. even says, I live in this room. And he's like, what? Oh, <laughs> that, like,
2: that was such yeah. a great line that you live in the room of the people upstairs.
1: Yeah. 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 Let's talk about Michael Powell as a director. We could talk about how he got panned, and but he's doing a lot right here, Brian. Like, what do you like about his approach to this this movie?
0: Well, like Chad said, like so much of this film you can see in other films, and uh, and like you said, I've, I wish I had more time to digest on it because even just you know sleeping on it, his last thing I did last night was watch this movie, and uh, you know I slept on it, and then I woke up this morning and I was thinking about it, and I was like, wow, man, that was really good. I liked how they did that and i still hadn't really formally put my notes together for it but you know just as we've been talking about it and i was like oh and this oh and this so a lot of this take is just completely off the hip for me i can't imagine what this would be like if you watched it you know 20 times over the course of five years
2: yeah it's important to remember like this guy had some clout he had three oscar nominations and a bafta nomination before he did this movie And then this movie completely destroys his career. He has 18 more years, but no other real success.
1: Yeah, one of our aircraft is missing. The 49th parallel, which is called The Invaders in the U.S., and The Red Shoes. Three Oscar nominations, and then, as you pointed out, a BAFTA Award nomination, too, for The Pursuit of Graf Spree. So, I mean, he doesn't do many movies after this. He has a hard time getting work It's, it's, it's kind of sad. I mean, I feel like in today's times you're allowed to have a, you can have a misstep. I mean, your, your career can suffer for it, but with motivation and stuff, you can, you can rise above, but boy, it, it tanked (laughs) him.
0: Right. Okay. So just let, let me just say this. So it said like, there have been directors before that would kill just to have this as their end all accolade. Yeah. So I I just want to say, like, I get it. I'm sure it seemed like a raw deal at the time. And, you know, like so many people who are artists, you know, their, their work is more appreciated after they pass. But I mean, I think in the end, if, if you could give that back to him and say, you don't understand how influential this film is going to be on the future, you're just not going to, you know, get the credit you crave right, you know, right off the, you're going to get the instant gratification for this you want. I think most directors would be like, yep, that's all I wanted in the first place.
2: Well, the cool thing is he's gotten to see it and they've done numerous interviews with him over the years where he's essentially said, I never thought I was wrong. I never thought I was wrong. I thought the critics were wrong. And it's he's gotten to sit back and just kind of enjoy this. It started as a cult following, but I think it's evolved beyond a cult following. It's in. Thousand and one movies you have to see before you die. It's in Roger Ebert's top 100 movies list. It's on the best British movies list, top 100. So it's now just pouring in accolade after accolade. And I'm glad he was still alive to see that, to be vindicated.
1: It did steal the rest of his career, though. I mean, think of all the other awesome projects where he could have just rocked it. That makes and, me
2: immensely sad, yes. And it
1: was stolen from him,
0: by, lar- largely by critics. I'm sure he had, like, five, it, at least five years to just na-na-na-na-na.
2: Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean,
0: Spielberg's had a misstep. I mean, Tim
1: Burton made Planet of the Apes remake. We still go see <laughs> Tim. I mean, like, we, we, we <laughs> if you can do that stuff and get away with it, then this, I just, it, it it's hard yeah. for me. <sighs> To really get why nobody would take a chance on him, the screenplay in itself is challenging for people. So if you know you've got a certain screenplay, at what point do you not say like I can get this guy on a deal? Much less as a studio, it's a risky property, but it's a good reclamation project. I mean, keeps your budget low, gets the job done. He can probably surpass, really surprise you. I just, it, it, I don't know. I guess I have. When you do that much good, when you do that much good, you know you can do it.
0: If you're going to fork over money to someone that, like you say, the critics have already kind of blacklisted in a way because of this. I mean, this movie, I could easily see something being like where directors or producers are like, God, I really want to hire this guy. But like the dude going into the shop and buying the the dirty pictures, they're you know closet fans of this film at the time. So that's a very
1: good point. We hadn't hit that revolution that you know, easy writer and the graduate were part of Yeah, You're right. Brian, the studios just had too much control. You made the wrong people mad. And now you're out of the game. I I should have been able to answer my own question. You're absolutely right. It's a political game. Yeah. See, if this happens to you later, you can go gorilla style. You can go Sundance. You can go, you, you just have to do it with less money. And if you're still talented, your talent will shine through, but you're right back then. You're blackballed. You're, you're blackballed.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a very good point. Scorsese, as Chad mentioned earlier, said uh, this and and Fernando Fellini's Eight and a Half contain all that you can be said about directing. He's always felt that Peeping Tom and Eight and a Half just if you're an aspiring director, these are the two movies you must see. And uh, they're dealing with film objectively and subjectively. Uh, and the, they're two very different. One captures the glamour and the enjoyment of filmmaking, and uh, Peeping Tom, on the other hand, shows the the aggression of it and uh, how the camera can violate and studying the two of them, those two extremes together uh, is everything that uh, people who make films are aspiring to do in his mind. And uh, they express themselves through those films. And this is, this is, this is really high praise uh, from a very accomplished and very wide uh, renowned director. And when it was re-released, They got to do it so that Scorsese presents, which is weird because he had nothing to do with it. But he went to bat for it that hard that he gave this movie a second life. And so Martin Scorsese, that's really cool to go out and stick your neck out for for something that influenced you that much and to share it with people when they clearly had missed it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. He's the proto retro movie roundtable of, hey, I found this retro movie that's really awesome and I want to share it with you. So, and by the yeah. way,
1: if you want to come on our show and do eight and a half with us, we're we're available.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think we already know what he would give it, though. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's a, and I think this was fun. Michael Powell is in this movie himself. Uh, he he plays Mark Lewis's dad in the old films, and uh, the son as Mark Lewis's uh, the young Mark is is his as his son, and people thought that he was getting too in character and connecting too much with his character. See, critics make stuff up and uh, saying that he was overly identified with the character and that he, uh, borderline abused his son in the making of this movie. And his son has come out saying that this is laughable and, mm-hmm. um, just says that this is all false. So once this, once the ball gets rolling, leaves the bounds of what's even true at that point so
2: well his wife played the boy's mother as well so yeah it's a whole family affair but it was ridiculous that they they panned him as just this narcissistic move of inserting yourself into the movie i mean good grief we see we Hitchcock
1: does it all the time
2: yeah wes craven did it we see stan lee he's not the director but it, it's a lot of fun to get those shots
1: I love a director, writer, creator, popping into the movie, speaking role even better. If it's, I mean, it, it's so cool. It's, it's very meta. It's, it, 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 but I mean, as somebody who appreciates movies, that's so cool. I mean, these are people who are behind the camera and a typical moviegoer doesn't even think to talk about the director half the time, when in reality, they and the cinematographer and the screenwriter, I mean, this, these are the people who you never even see that help breathe life into your movie. Too much credit goes to actors, and acting is really important. I don't want to take anything away from great acting, but the people behind the camera are the creative forces that breathe this thing into life, and they're in it 24/7. For in this case, it was only six weeks of period moving making. It's actually made pretty fast, but you can be very involved and very you can totally take over your life. And I just think it's for those to me it's so inspiring to see what what goes with that. So it's <laughs> to your point, Chad. I just think it's sad that. They made this, you know, painted him like out to be this monster who made this horrible piece of snuff.
2: Right. And Fry, you might be able to back me up. I'm a little worried about you because you and I are usually on the same page. But I actually thought the little boy, his son, did a good job. He didn't want a professional actor. He wanted someone with little acting experience to just emote. I thought the kid did a good job.
0: This might be just uh, coming from the fact that I feel like when they portray young boys from that era anyway, they all come across as a little creepy anyway. Yeah. So I, I do actually really enjoy the fact that like they got... I feel like if you can communicate with a child that age what you want and then they act in that way... Now, granted, against the critics, this is... You know, his dad's telling him how to act in this scenario. It's not like he's actually dropping a lizard on him to see how he reacts and stuff like that. So I I think this is a complete win. Like not only from the look and the vibe that the child portrays that you can actually see that becoming the man that you've been used to in the whole movie so far. But it also is it's a triumph in, in familial communication that they can actually that he could direct his son in that way at that age.
2: Yeah, high praise.
0: Yeah,
1: and we have not quite gotten. This is a field day for cinematography. This was a real joy for camera work. They set the mood really well. It does multiple things well. It does over the shots well. When Mark's up on the scaffolding, viewing down on them, there's a sense of being watched. Uh, the first person perspective through the camera with the creepy little cross, the crosshairs that that would have been in the camera that that he's using at the time. Uh, the looking through like the focus on the eyes that that are so much on this use of lighting they use darkness well Uh, color has come on board but there's a dinginess to it but they put that to use for you they make it uncomfortable for you and then similarly the warmth of Helen is brought into this there's an innocence in her like that's reinforced too in the wardrobe and stuff she's wearing a very bright crisp blue and orange kind of bright bold colors they are the loudest pops of color in this otherwise kind of dingy world that they that Mark inhabits most of the time his apartment's very drab it it's just so much good mood setting with the camera the lighting and it's just i mean i do see where scorsese's talking about it they're using the camera to really capture the mood well and that's as a director that's one of your strongest tools of is what you're doing with that camera
0: sure
2: yeah this is a masterpiece it's not something that i typically go out of my way to notice but the shots with vivian where she would be in darkness and then there would be light or even when they're working on the movie set the movie set is bright you've got colorful trunks and hats and everything else and that's mark's day job and that's who he is he's in this light and in this brightness but then he's in the shadows and he his world is black and white his movies are black and white and there's the crossbar technique that that is really cool because Michael Powell says it's supposed to resemble a rifle scope. That's why Mark says the camera must never see you. It, I lose everything that the camera sees. So it's scouting his victim. Anytime you see the camera on a young woman, there's this sense of foreboding. So it stuns me how well this was shot. It really takes someone that knows what they're doing... All the way from just basic camera work. You were talking about the scaffolding shot. That's that's a great shot, but the lighting throughout is just so impressive.
1: Yeah. And like you said, when Mrs. Stevens is up there and he shines the light on her, she's blind, she's very vulnerable. The the dangerous feel that's held from just lighting and in terms of shining that light on her. And he shines the light on I'm like that lighting is just used to, like, you know, you're just bare. You're out there all alone. Danger is really implied through that. And it's interesting. We don't see that what, what Mark's doing with the mirror until the very end either. They do a very good job of concealing that. And they would even say, like, people don't die with that kind of fear normally. So
2: Right. They had the same expression. And you're like, what causes that?
1: Honestly, that's one of the big mystery pieces of this movie that keeps drawing you in. You don't like what Mark's doing, but you cannot help but sit there and say like what what's the vision that he's trying to get here like it's 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 clearly a bad vision, it's a nightmare, but what is it he's going for?" And we don't really fully see it like we got a pretty good idea a little bit later, but we don't really fully understand it until the very very end that's yeah. that's that that just that adds to that tension
2: Dora's death, you don't even know how she's killed initially.
1: Excellent point. And a lot of this violence, which is why I'm not sure it's so, so slow slashery. I mean, I get why there's influence in there, but you don't see it on film. No. You know, there's not there's not a lot of blood in this movie. There's not you don't see the stabbing. And like you said, we don't even know how Dora dies initially. It's just bad is what the investigators say. So
0: I uh, I think that's a, a, a real uh, another big knock on this movie getting as destroyed as it was at the time that he was able to still portray that suspense and, and horror, if you will, without actually showing anything.
2: Yeah, it was so heavily edited. There was a less edited version, but a lot of the stuff that got cut, there was additional nudity. There was a little bit more. You saw a lot more with the kills. That stuff has just been lost to time, unfortunately.
1: I, I kind of like that some of this is off screen, though.
0: I think that the uh, it's I'd still watch the extended cut.
2: Yep, I yeah, want to see it.
1: I, I I think there's a DVD, if I'm not mistaken, Chad, that puts a lot of stuff back in. However, some of it truly is lost in a trash can, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, there is, there is, and I definitely recommend checking it out because this isn't a very long movie either. I don't feel like it overstays it. It's welcome. It's ninety some minutes, I think.
1: Yeah, and I think another thing that bothers people at the time is killers at the time were really flat characters. Scorsese said this. He said that they're usually just gunmen and they don't really do, like. This is a complicated character, and he's he's a handsome guy. I mean, Helen takes a liking to him for good reason. I mean, he's well dressed. He has a legitimate job. He has a not so legitimate job too of taking girly pictures. But right. I mean, he's got a skill. And he's intelligent, and he's articulate, and he, you know he's he's even the landlord of this place. He's got a lot of things that are going for him, but th- he's got this very haunting thing beneath him. And so much in the '60s, appearances, of a lot of it was false, but what is good and wholesome and stuff like that are implied with how you look. He looks, he looks safe, and even even Vivian says. I can't be. I can't act afraid with you. You're just so. You're so. I feel so comfortable with you. Again, comfort is misplaced. <laughs> yep.
2: Yeah. He offers her milk. What kind of serial killer just has milk on hand?
1: So. Yeah. It, I think that's a. That is a good way to play off of what the expectations at the time were as well. So, like I said, he's so put together. He's so precise. But on the other hand, like, he's so sloppy. He keeps saying, like, I don't care if I'm discovered. Like, he doesn't really try and get rid of the bodies. He just, like, the, when he kills somebody and puts them in a trunk, they're just in there. Like, he's interested in the investigation afterwards, mm-hmm. to
2: be
0: honest. Like, th- it's like he wants Then he starts to- filming the, you know, then he starts filming the cops as they're coming to get him. Like, yeah, yeah, come get me.
2: Yeah, he tells the other guy on the set, I think he was a cameraman as well, that. He's like, oh, the cops will eventually catch him. They'll eventually figure it out. They're they're hip to this. So yeah. He expects to get caught and he's just interested in the story.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I think the conflict there he genuinely likes him. Like he's knocking over his dinner table. Like the salt and pepper shakers are on the floor. He's just so tickled that someone is interested in him. And right. I, I think that's one of the other things that's truly sad about this. There's part of him that wants to just be happy. He wishes that he didn't you see this thing that it becomes a burden for him, that he knows that he it's before you're like, Oh, this is this guy's just sick and he's enjoying it. But then it's just it's just the way that I am and I'm vexed by this and there's other parts of my life that I would like to go on and be a normal person, but this is pulling me back. Like I'm it's like being chained to this <laughs> dark urge.
2: Yeah, Millie's death was kinda sweet when you think about it, because he he goes and kills Millie because he suddenly has the urge to kill Helen and he doesn't want to. So he just goes and and kills this pinup girl to get rid of this urge or sate it for a while, keep it at bay. So it's like, Oh, that's, that's kind of nice. He still killed someone and that's not great, but, uh, no, he's at least sweet on her and trying to avoid harming her.
1: So this is a very British production. Obviously it's landing on the BFI. Chad, What do you think about this movie being in Britain? It's kind of odd to see this movie industry, which is clearly that they make movies in London. We cover it all the time, actually. It's it's, it's a thriving movie industry. But at this point in time, I feel like Hollywood and the Hollywood lifestyle takes over so much. But I feel like this movie is so much better being in London than it is in Hollywood.
2: I think with London's history, and I mentioned The Lodger, and The Lodger is about Jack the Ripper, I feel like that's a little bit played with here. You know, it's drawing from the lodger, putting us in the killer's point of view. And we have a serial killer killing women. And some of these women are doing things that society looks down on. We've got the prostitutes. We've got the pin-up models. So it, London is a great setting for this. It's got the history. It's got the citizenry probably saying, not again. Not again with this. Is this happening Again, do we have Jack the Ripper reborn?
1: Yeah, I, I was wondering myself, what is this shifting this to New York or Los Angeles due to it? Something's not as glamorous about these settings and somehow that that makes it seem like a grittier environment, certainly than L.A. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Soundtrack, Brian. What do you think about the music here?
0: I think that if... I don't want to jump into my change one thing. I think that the soundtrack was appropriate to what was happening. But I have more to add for my change one thing. Yeah.
2: That's fair. I like the piano theme. I like... I guess it would be Mark's theme. That they're playing and it becomes a little bit haunting and it's got some dissonance in it. And it reminded me vaguely, and I'm wondering if Carpenter was inspired for Halloween, because it's got a little hint of that Halloweenish theme in it, the same re- repetitive notes that da, da 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 in the background. So, I, huh. more, more to Brian's point or earlier, I don't think the soundtrack stands out as much as the other sound effects the heartbeats the the quick cuts and the screams and things like that the sound effects in this are excellent and the dub overs including the voices that you hear from his father that's one of the last things you hear in this movie is his father
1: yeah yeah i i thought the soundtrack was good i think this the i think that it, it evokes some sadness at times. hundred percent. Yeah. And that's that's good because that's what they're going for. This movie's not as tonally consistent as say again, like say it's psycho so it doesn't hit the intense, intense moments, but this movie's not I feel I suppose like it's compared to psycho a lot. We didn't talk about that as much. This movie just isn't doing the same game. And it, it's it's a little more all over the place. So it's a little more difficult. The sympathetic nature of Mark's character is reinforced in the music, and that to me was its strongest point.
2: Mm. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does have a lament to it and a sadness. I definitely, definitely agree with you there.
1: We don't cover many movies that you would just flat out call a tragedy, but is it fair? Like, we don't often talk about that as being a genre. Like, but it—that's what this movie. That that this movie is also a tragedy.
2: Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a reflection on child abuse and fear and introducing a child to just horrible stimuli. So yeah, Mark is, while he wouldn't be like a tragic hero, he he definitely is a tragic case of just mistreatment and the consequences that led to in his adult life.
0: I think his treatment as a victim in here gets completely lost because people were not yet ready to see the victims of mental illness and of child abuse as victims
2: Mm -hmm. once Mm -hmm. they went
0: Mm -hmm. on to do, you know, darker things themselves.
2: Yeah, you're right. Freud, Freud
1: was around, though, talking about like, you know, childhood and stuff like that being like like that. That is all the rage in the psychological world at this point.
2: They do make kind of a joke out of it, though, because he does go to the psychiatrist for help. He's like, oh, curing it is easy and you get your hopes for markup. And he's like, oh, it's just several sessions a week over the course of two to three years. And it's done almost as like a rim shot of, but um ching." like, well, our killer's screwed because he needs to kill now and he just needs a pill. But yeah, there's... There's still a little bit of that mental health stigma here.
1: Okay. Yeah. Do you
0: guys want to hand out some awards? Love to. MVP. Brian? I went with Carl on this one. Um I don't know how I I had a hard time even really thinking of anyone else for this. There's some good acting performances done all around, but man his is just stellar. And his awkwardness, and his trepidations, and ultimately, in his you know fits of murder, he's always a little reserved about it, and that really feeds into that psychosis. He uh, the
1: the backlash hit him too. We didn't talk about that. Uh, now that you brought him up, uh, he said at the premiere, uh, Carl Bellum did. He said that Michael Powell and he nobody came up to shake their hands. Like there was like this. At the movie premiere, there was kind of this heavy set, like, what did we just watch kind of thing? And not like, hey, we all did this great thing. It was like a, okay, don't make eye contact <laughs> with these two guys. So it it, it hit Carl Bohm as well. Chad, what about you?
2: I went with Michael Powell. I just, I think this movie is so well put together. He put his career on the line and knocked it out of the park. And unfortunately, the public wasn't ready for it.
1: Not only did he put it on the line, he sacrificed it. All right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Michael Powell's my pick as well, and uh, it's a it's a brave movie to make, and uh, I can't say that it really paid off for him. But uh, right. on the other hand, uh, it, it, as so often great art is, it, it ultimately will be appreciated, but certainly not in its time. So, I've been been talking about Michael Powell's prowess in this movie. So, good job, best supporting actor,
0: Fry. Uh, I went with Maxine Audrey. Mm -hmm. uh, Audley, excuse me, Audley. I absolutely love the mother's character in this. I thought that given how little time she actually gets on screen, she was the most memorable uh, secondary character, and that's including Helen. So, uh, yeah.
2: Yeah, two for two for, for me. Mrs. Stevens, Maxine Audley, knocked it out of the park.
1: She was great. And furthermore, she is chilling. Like because Mark's your protagonist and you've attached yourself to him, you kind of want him to be stopped. But on the other hand, like there's this like threat that she possesses to him. Like she sees through him, even though mm-hmm. she can't see at all. And that's such a compelling thing. She does a great job of playing this character. She really holds her own. She's vulnerable at a moment, but for the most part, she's she's in control. She knows what's going on, and that that sternness and that that confidence and boy, she really takes over the camera. So I'm three for three on that one yep she was gr- she was great
2: what studio do you work at like she knows
1: she's she, she she's she's a chilling uh performance in this one for sure hidden gem brian
0: i went with miles uh Malson on this one he's the creepy dude buying porn <laughs> he really acted that scene out of the park and i'll tell you why i work in a place that, that carries still carries magazines and every older man who comes in looking for a dirty magazine acts just like that. (laughs) And I'm telling you, it's hilarious. When I was watching this, I was like, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. They'll come in, they'll sneak over in line. They'll wait for like a male cashier. They will set the magazine down upside down on the counter. They'll look away (laughs) from you as you ring it up. I mean, he like if he was in that for any other reason I might have considered him as supporting but it was more like a comic relief piece for me. That was another part where I laughed out loud. So, yeah, that that really happens.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, that was mine as well.
2: 3 for 3. You could really screw up a comic relief character in this movie, but him just sweating through this entire ordeal and even through the book of it's clearly titillating to him. He's like, "Okay, how much for one? How much for the whole thing?" And it's just so funny.
0: And then the whole uh, the whole bargaining piece where he's like, "Well, I'll make it this," and then we'll toss in two newspapers that he clearly <laughs> gives zero craps about. Yes. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Totally.
1: Now this one's tough. Recast. If you had to recast somebody else, put somebody else in their place. Who would it be?
0: Oh. You know, I, I was trying to go for something like, man, I kind of wish I just had a familiar face in this movie, but I was thinking like, just, you know, deal, dealing with, uh, you know, mental illness and stuff like that. What if they toss Janice Joplin in there as one of these girls?
2: Mm. Yeah. Mm. I love okay.
0: it. yeah. Chad.
2: I thought Moira Shearer did a wonderful job. She plays Vivian in the stand in, but since we've got to replace someone I'm with Brian, I kind of want a familiar face. I went with Tina Louise, and she's most famous for playing Ginger on Gilligan's Island.
1: Ooh, fine choice, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes,
2: Russell approves of the redhead.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, Tina Louise is yes. an icon. Yes. More people would have seen it then. I think so. I, I don't want the policeman to be quite so casual. I want the policeman to have a little more presence like they they're not totally incompetent, and i want to, I want them to seem sharper and a little more in control, and like he knows he's going to get caught, so I'd rather see a really competent so this is a, this is more of a diversion or like like from what they actually did. This isn't just put somebody in and have them do the same thing and do it better. I want to see what Sean Connery can do with the investigator mm. portion
2: You don't want the Baxter. I thought I heard a putty tat line
1: <laughs> no no.
2: That was their one chance. The pencils drop.
1: And I know he's Scottish.
2: If he can be a Spanish-Egyptian and Highlander, he can play an Englishman.
1: There you go. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, best wardrobe or makeup moment kind of like how he portray or, I'm sorry Carl uh, portrays himself like it's a very subdued uh, most of the time it's kind of the artistic piece of being a, a cameraman but then he also has like your your general tie suit on and that sort of thing there aren't very many like flashy things going on here like the the psychi- psychiatrist they have watching and stuff like that but yeah I just think that it adds to his kind of don't look at me I'm doing bad things yeah
1: i didn't like his bulky coat that had like giant sticks (laughs) for buttons i've never i've never liked that on a men's jacket before like uh yeah that that uh i'm i'm nitpicking on one specific thing but i remember seeing that going like ah i hate buttons like that (laughs) he's he's a sharper dressed dude Mm -hmm. i don't like it i don't like it like the gray suit though that he had at one point i'm with you on that one so that that was cool uh Chad, best wardrobe makeup moment.
2: I'm just going to go with Pamela Green. We didn't really touch on this, but she had her own pinup studio that was outside of this film. And so she provided her own wardrobe and they actually used her studio to shoot her scenes. So she's doing a good job with the wardrobe there for the pinup girl. So Pamela Green.
1: And she basically is what you're seeing in this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, she, uh, she she, is somebody who takes pictures like like that. And it was another funny old story that we didn't tell for Pamela Green, now that you brought her back up. Michael Powell used four huge arc lights in really close proximity to, to Pamela Green to light her, and she had to stand under them for such a long time that, like, the heat burned her. She got, like, red marks on her skin and he like the director, total old old time movie director mistreating their, their actors. On uh, the next morning, her eyes were swollen oh. shut, and the makeup man showed uh, her condition to Powell. And the director just shrugged and said, "Make sure she looked good for the next shot." You know, I feel like there was a disposability in all the stories. I really admire Michael Powell's commitment to this role, but if there's anything I don't like, there's a there's a it was an exploitation and a mistreatment and maybe even a l- looking down on Pamela Green because of what it was that she had done. Maybe she wasn't just an actress, that she was, you know, kind of a nude model and stuff like that. But you still shouldn't treat somebody that way. You still shouldn't treat them with no dignity. So as much as I praised Michael Pell, I will say the stories don't sound real nice, at least directed towards Pamela All Green. Right. So, yeah. Be nice to your actors. Be nice to them. So my best wardrobe or makeup moment is going to be the dragonfly pen. It's a really big moment. And I would like to, like I said, I, th- I think on further passes on this, I'm wondering, is there some symbolic nature to why the dragonfly specifically? But it, it definitely was a big moment in the film that Mark gave a gift to Helen. It really showed that he liked her. And furthermore, that she was very touched by it as well. So uh, I wonder if there is, I, I looked for it. What what does the dragonfly necessarily mean in in literature? But I'm not sure how it applies to this scene. But I feel like it's more important than I'm articulating.
2: Yeah, I had the same thoughts, but couldn't find anything. But I do love that little brooch. That was nice.
1: Yeah. So if you know, if somebody out there analyzes film better than we do, won't be hard to do. But um, if you if you're out there and you know why the dragonfly or what makes it so great, help tell me why my pick's a good pick because. <laughs> I suspect there's more to it than just than what I'm saying here. So how's that for an
0: answer? Probably a reach, but I know dragonflies are supposed to represent maturity. So maybe the fact that he's giving her this pen is him culminating to the end of his convalescence of, of what he was doing and trying to, to come out of it.
1: Huh? Like I, after I'm done with my documentary, I can maybe be with you, but I can't, um, Oh, of course, it's a 21 birthday present, you know, like maturity, maybe. I don't know. I drag, Dragonflies are cool. They're really skinny, long, aerodynamic-looking creatures. They're amazing.
2: Historically means a change in life, so maybe he was trying to change.
1: Maybe. I, I think that, that could be. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like that. I like that notion. Brian, this is a great movie for cinematography. What is your best shot? Uh,
0: my best shot is uh, basically when he breaks out the window and films the police coming to get him. <laughs> I abs- I absolutely love that just because like he is he's like this is it this is the climax of my film and it's like I've got to get it all and he's like so into it he breaks out a window and he's like come on you know he's it's it seems like a challenge but it, he's not part of the film yet. So he okay. films them coming to get him and then he flips the camera around on himself
2: to kill himself.
1: Yeah. Now, Chad, best shot.
2: I've already gushed about it, but the opener with that extremely long tracking shot up the stairs and into the flat for his first kill, I just think that's incredible. My
1: best shot's going to be, there's an amazing shot of Mark watching Helen as, he, as she's watching his childhood movies. And he's looking through the rotating film reels. And we see his eyes just intensely watching her through that. The lighting's great. Framing his eyes again. It's it's just, it shows the uh, creepiness. It shows the fetish nature on there, but it also shows the interest that he has in her, too. So, I mean, this shot's doing so much. Oh, yeah. um, and freaks yeah.
2: her out, rightfully so.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'd like to be explained what I'm watching.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I sometimes think that too.
1: Best scene, Brian.
0: My best scene is, uh, when he is trying to articulate to her that, that he can't see her scared. Like basically Mm. the entire part where he's trying to confess in a way that, that her fear is not where he wants to go.
2: Yeah, I think in modern terms, we'd say that's his trigger. Yes. But it's like catnip to him. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, good to know yourself anyway. Yeah. Uh, So,
2: Yeah, he's very self-aware.
1: Chad, best scene.
2: The scene with Mrs. Stevens questioning Mark in her flat. I think that heartbeat sound effect where it's just quicker and quicker and quicker. as she's like, hey, what studio do you work in? What... What did that actress where did she work? Did you know her? And he's just he's like I'm going to get busted. So there's still we talked about he's a little careless, but there's still a fear of getting caught. So before he's done. Uh, yes, before he's done and then the heartbeat fades and it slows down as he gets out. So I I just thought that entire scene was wonderful.
1: Yeah, that's mine as well. It's so intense yeah that's the most intense moment of this film and maxine Audley just rocks it she's awesome here oh yes brian change one thing
0: i thought the music was too loud like even the stuff that you know that was supposed to be building for suspense and stuff i thought if they took it back a couple notches it would have done the the film better service that's why i didn't want to bring it up too much beforehand
2: you're officially old (laughs) the music's
0: too loud No, it wasn't too loud in that way. I just think that that you can provide that sort of suspense using music if it's not, like, overpowering. And I felt like it was just a little overpowering in this.
2: No, you're right. You're right. Yeah.
1: Chad, change one thing.
2: I think sometimes Mark can come on as a little too creepy, and there's a sense of, why does Helen (laughs) trust this dude? So there are certain scenes where I'd like him to just dial it back a little bit. You know, you can still be socially awkward and not, I'm clearly going to murder you <laughs> if you're a chance. Right.
1: Yeah, I, I think he's a creepy character. I'm okay with that one. That's funny. Too creepy. My change with thing is I want the investigators to probably play a little bit more of a role in this. It appears la- me
0: shocked.
2: Yeah,
1: I want the investigators to play more of a role at the end of the movie I want them to start to put together what's going on and talk to each other about what their findings were put the puzzle pieces together I would like the mystery part of this I like that Mark himself is a mystery where he's making a documentary we as an audience are trying to figure it out it adds tension for the other characters to also not know what we do not know we might know a little more than they know but they're finding things out and it's through them that we ultimately do find things out in the end so use that this is not primarily a mystery movie but i i think that they could i think they could be used as a stronger plot device
0: russell says Mm -hmm. f the police
2: (laughs) more crime always the case with russell more crime
0: yes uh best quote brian mother what worries you the price of whiskey what else what matters (laughs)
1: I figured you'd like something Mrs. Stevens said along those lines, yeah. Like, come back later and you'll see me laid out.
0: <laughs> I was just like, that's a, again another part where it made me laugh out loud, and it, it it did take me out of the movie a little bit because it was like a fairly serious sequence. But you have to get used to. It. She comes in with a with a few quips, and I was like, <laughs> loves himself some Johnny Walker, what can I say?
1: Right. I think she's kind of. I, I, there's a severity to her that I find more chilling to be honest with you. So even as she was saying those things, it was just like, okay, we got a mean mom who drinks too much. This this is also going to be a not good thing. <laughs> Why is Helen such a nice, cheery person in all this world of terribleness around her with Mark and her mom and her mom's actually cooler than I thought. She's rightfully worried. Um, so uh <laughs> we don't see her on a, on a on a better on a uh, on other things, but uh her grumpy curmudgeoniness was definitely well used when directed at mark yeah so. she gets
2: a pass on the day drinking for nailing that the guy upstairs is a serial killer right definitely. <laughs>
0: definitely mom points <laughs> chad best quote you know what
2: this is a highly quotable movie i really thought there were a bunch of great ones but i think i'm gonna go with imagine someone coming towards you who wants to kill you regardless of consequences a madman yes and he knows it and you don't that was just chilling to me. Yeah.
1: You're right. This is a very quotable movie. The 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 whatever I photograph, I always lose is very poignant mm-hmm. in this one. I can't believe nobody said, um, though, uh, do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear. Yeah. 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 And also, Miss Stevens had some other good ones, too. Like, just like, I don't trust a man who walks quietly. He's shy, mother. His footsteps aren't—they're stealthy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> she she had so many great ones, but even the director—I uh, will paraphrase this—but the silly girl, she's fainted in the wrong scene as she's just discovered a body. Right.
1: So. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, suppose they catch you? Oh, they will. Yes. They look very efficient. <laughs> yeah. Which again, like, we, I want these policemen to be efficient. But then then she goes, "Don't you mind?" And uh, he goes, "No." Right. Mark, are you crazy? <laughs> yes. yes. Do you think they'll notice? Like, that was a creepy run there.
2: Right. Yeah. The grin after he says yes to crazy, the knowing grin is just amazing.
1: Yes. All right. This is the time. Uh-oh. Five-star scale, half-star intervals. Brian, what do you give Peeping Tom from 1960?
0: Lately refuse. Four stars. Wow.
1: Four stars. Okay. And yeah, Chad, how about you, man?
2: I've gushed enough. I've, get, I've shown all of my cards here. This is five stars. It was five stars when I first saw it. It's, it's a higher five stars now. I think it's an incredible film on its own. But once you add the influence, this is a masterpiece in the genre.
1: So where does this rank for you on your horror rankings? Roughly. You don't have to give me an exact number.
2: Top twenty-five.
1: That's high. That is high praise because this man has seen a lot of them.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Coming up on number one thousand.
1: This is in your wheelhouse, to say the least. So uh, that means a lot. And I'm gonna I'm gonna split the difference between you guys. I'm gonna go with four point five. See, this is where those half star intervals come in. they refuse. Yeah, it it is it is quite good. And I would even say that with more time, with more study, more appreciation. This has the chance to grow, so because this is an intellectual movie, I even told Chad I was like, ah, "I wish I had more time with this one." I stayed up late last night reading and studying, but I mean, more watches, more passes. This is a challenging movie, and I like I like a challenge. So this was a fun one to study. The if you just watched it and put it down, you might be like, "Well, that that ending made me sad, or something like that." And I wish that I hadn't watched it, but it's so much more than that. So fun when you have something to chew on and think about
2: oh, i was so nervous i have not been this nervous for a movie and you guys are viewing it because we're like let's just do something fun spontaneously and this is what gets picked in the random generator i'm like oh no oh my reputation is on the line so I, i'm glad it went down okay for you guys
1: I did ask for a layup. Like I said, we need something easy on short term. Uh, sh- a short term turnaround. Chad's like Peeping
0: Tom. The
1: <laughs> Godfather was initially in there. I'm. There
0: going,
2: <laughs> I think. I think I missed the point of that.
0: I, I. Yeah, I did. I did very nearly text you guys and be like, there are a couple loaded ones in here that are not going to be layups. But I was like, ah, I'll just let it ride.
2: <laughs> I mean. Uh, London serial killer. It's a layup.
1: There are no lay. Hey, we brought our A-game, I think. This was a good episode. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, let's do it again, though, next week. Chad, do you want to help me pick a movie for next week? Love to. All right. So... Conspiracy theory from 1997. A taxi driver with a penchant for conspiracy theories becomes a target after one of these theories turns out to be true. Unfortunately, to save his life, he has to figure out which theory it is. Option two, Mercury rising from 1998. Shadowy elements in the NSA target a nine-year-old autistic savant for death when he is able to decipher a top-secret code. And option three, The Chamber from 1996. A young man... Fresh out of law school, tries to win a reprieve for his racist grandfather who is on a death row.
2: I have not been on a podcast yet where we've done a Mel Gibson movie. So I'm going conspiracy theory. I'm going to talk some Mel Gibson Julia nice. Roberts.
1: They'll never take your freedom.
2: Yes, or my Julia Roberts. It's a Chad and Dustin special.
1: Yeah, you you yeah, you've hit the Julia Roberts. Uh, <laughs> it's it's catalog pretty hard here lately.
2: Yeah. <laughs> It's starting to be our thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, you you've, you've definitely done a lot of Julia Roberts here lately. Yeah. You did uh you did Valentine's Day, you did uh Runaway Bride and now you're doing this one. It's
2: Pokemon, We've got to catch 'em all.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, guys. This was a lot of fun. And thank you all the Lord's ladies and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We appreciate you. And we want you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you love about the show. Tell us how you think it could be better. We enjoy hearing from you and engaging with us. So subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. We're on YouTube, too. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us at at movie underscore retro on Twitter. Email us at retro movie roundtable at yahoo.com, all one word. And providing and producing this podcast is fun, but not free. So we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retro movie roundtable. Any contributions you make will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. And as always, thank you for listening and be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian?
0: Wouldn't it be dramatic supposing the people inside were dead? all stretched out with the lights quietly burning about them.